And the reason I think this is important to do what we're going to talk about today is because at some point within church history, particularly the American church history, something that has often been referred to as easy believism, it started being taught as the doctrine of salvation in the church. Now, easy believism basically teaches that you're saved when you make a decision for Jesus. Uh, You make this decision for Jesus, you pray a prayer, and then you just sort of go through life and wait to go to heaven. With easy believism, there's no change of life that's necessary or real. There's no newness to life because of Christ. There's not really anything there but making this decision, praying a prayer, and then waiting to go to heaven. But I wonder, I mean, if we just took a Bible, I mean, if you had never been in church, and someone handed you a Bible, and you began to read, particularly the life of Jesus, the words of Paul, would any of us in that time, would we, would we come to the conclusion that salvation, it is making a decision, it is praying a prayer, and then that's it, just basically sitting around and waiting to either die or for Jesus to take us home to heaven. Would, would anyone conclude that without being taught that if they just read the Bible? I, I cannot possibly imagine that that would be the case. My study of Scripture, it, it leads me to almost the exact opposite. Nothing I see in Scripture leads me to believe that salvation is a, a prayer that we prayed at some point in the past a decision that we made that has no bearing on our day-to-day present life. The salvation that Jesus Christ died to provide, it does change our eternal destiny. From what I see in Scripture, it also makes a profound change on our day-to-day lives. What I see in Scripture also leads me to conclude that that. That something that we would call a salvation, a decision, a a prayer that was done at some point in the past but has no impact on our day-to-day lives, it really doesn't actually change our eternal destiny. What kind of changes should we see? I mean, if, if I have truly been born again, And I have come to Christ and He has saved me. What kind of evidence would be there? What would be evidence of Jesus in my life? We're going to examine ourselves today to look for such evidence. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians 13 and 5. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Just one verse is our main passage for the day, and then we're going to kind of go all over the place. I hope you have your sword drill Bibles and are ready to go all over with me. The Apostle Paul writes, examine yourself, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Examine yourself, whether you're in the faith. Prove your own self. See if Jesus is in you. And if He's not, it's because you're a reprobate. The title of the message, 
to examine yourself. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather, to study your word, sing your praise, just to be together as your children, together with one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we come today with a desire to, to know truth, the truth of your word, the truth of our conversion. Lord, we want to be sure that we are born again. Lord, your word tells us that we can know for certain. I mean, we can know. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't have to just kind of, whoo, I hope it works out in the end, kind of a mindset. We can know. But Lord, the way that we know, the way that Scripture says that we know, it's different than what culture often says the way that we know. So today we come and we surrender this time to you and we surrender to the lordship of christ and we surrender to the authority of your word and lord what it says we're going to say that's right and what it says we're going to say that's real and lord where our lives do not line up with your word we're not going to make excuses we're not going to look for reasons at why we don't have to to conform to Scripture. Rather, we are going to submit our lives to Your Word. We are going to repent where we're wrong. We're going to call on Jesus. Father, if the examination we go through today reveals we have never been born again, we are not going to ignore that and hope for the best. We are going to come to Jesus, calling on Him to save us. Father, have Your way in all of our hearts today. Have your way in all of our lives, we ask in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. To say that the church in Corinth had problems would be a massive understatement. We don't have time this morning to get into all the issues the church in Corinth had, but they were severe. They were carnal in their living. They were often wrong in what they believed about Jesus. And they were half-hearted in their devotion to Jesus. And Paul writes to seek to call them to repentance and to call them to return to following Jesus. And as he does this, in the end of 2 Corinthians, he he does something that is kind of powerful. He calls on them to consider, to examine their lives and see if they're genuinely saved. Right? He's he's wanting them to, to consider the possibility. Maybe it's not you need to return to Jesus. Maybe you need to come to Jesus for the very first time. And as he calls on them to examine themselves, before we look at what he did say, I want us to notice what he didn't say. What we often say in our day. He didn't ask, did you you come to an altar and pray at some point in your past? He didn't ask, did you pray a prayer? He didn't ask, were you baptized? He didn't ask, do you attend church? Are you a member of a church? He didn't ask, were you raised in church? He didn't ask, are your parents Christians? He didn't ask, are you basically a good person? He didn't ask, do you remember the day that you prayed the prayer? Did you write it down on a piece of paper so you can look at that? He didn't ask any of those things. Instead, He calls on them to examine themselves and see if they're in the faith at all. And He says they will know that they're in the faith because there will be evidence of Jesus 
in their lives. There will be stuff in their life that will testify of Christ and His work in them and through them and for them. And that is somewhat of a shocking statement because it does imply that these people who are professing faith in Jesus may not actually be saved. I mean, that's the point that he gets at the last part. Except ye be reprobates. If there is no evidence of Jesus in your life, what he's saying is, there, there will be evidence, in other words, there will be evidence of Jesus in your life unless you're a reprobate, unless you're not really saved to begin with. Since they may not be saved, they are to examine themselves, to prove themselves. Make sure they are in Christ and Christ is in them. So they can have certainty of their salvation. Now what Paul is talking about here is not something to be taken lightly. He's not exaggerating his point to try to, to drive home something. He isn't being sarcastic. He's not joking around. He is legitimately telling them, you may not be saved. I mean, the way that you're living, the stuff that you believe, you may not actually be born again. Examine yourself. Look at your life to see evidence of Jesus. We in the day of easy believism, nominal Christianity, carnal living and half-hearted devotion to Jesus need to test ourselves in the light of Scripture to see if Jesus Christ is in our lives. As we look at what we're going to talk about today, we have to be sure that Scripture is going to be the standard. We can't go off our feelings. We can't go off of what mom and dad told us. We can't go off of what culture tells us. We have to put everything aside. Put ourselves to the test and say, this is what Scripture says. Is this evident in my life? Is this an an evidence of Jesus in me? And if it's not, then that means something. I mean, if it's not that evidence of Jesus, that means something. Not that I need to try harder. Not that I should come to church more. Not that I should turn over a new leaf. It is evidence. It is proof. I am not saved. And I must be born again. So we're going to look at Scripture today. We're going to... What Scripture says and ask ourselves if there's evidence of Jesus in light of what Scripture says. Now we are mostly going to focus on the words of Jesus Himself because of what our culture tends to say about Jesus. Culture tends to teach us that Jesus is really kind of the ultimate easy believism teacher. Just love one another and you'll be fine. As long as you love other people, you're not judgmental, well, then you are obviously clearly good to go. But that's not Jesus, as we'll see, not by a long shot. So with that in mind, I want to ask you four questions this morning. And as you examine yourself, as we all examine ourselves, don't answer in light of your public persona. Answer in light of your secret life. Right? What I mean by secret life is who you really are. For many people, there is what they project for the world to see But then there is the reality that is vastly different. 
We're, we're not called here to, to examine ourselves in light of what we want the world to think about us. We're not going to examine ourselves in light of how we act in church. And how we are when we put on our best behavior. We want to examine ourselves in light of the, the us that comes out when no one else is around. Examine ourselves in light of who we are when we go on vacation and there's no one from our church or our community that will know us. Examine ourselves in light of who we are in the dark when no one can see and there's no one to impress. Answer in light of who we are in our heart, not who we are in our appearance. Take that person, compare them to the Word of God, and see if he stands. Question one. How has Jesus changed my life? As I said, the salvation that Jesus brings changes our lives. Everything about this salvation testifies of change. Even what Jesus himself calls it. Turn to John chapter 3. Familiar passage. Very familiar passage. Verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him. Pay attention to what Jesus says. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, unto thee, you must be born again. Now, we don't have time to get into an awful lot of detail about this, but notice Nicodemus first. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He is a religious person. He is religious in the right religion. He's a worshiper of Yahweh through Judaism. He is not the priest of Baal. He is not an atheist. He is not an agnostic. He is not even a nominal believer in Yahweh. He as a Pharisee has devoted his life to living for God and doing the law. And when he comes to Jesus and asks about whether or not what's going on, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, again, I don't have time for all of this, but notice Jesus didn't say, pray a prayer. Jesus didn't say, oh, you want to go be baptized. Jesus didn't say, here's an altar, come and kneel down. You must be born again. And what if you're not born again? Jesus says if you're not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot that goes into the kingdom of God, but the essence for our point today is the kingdom of God would be heaven. Jesus is essentially saying you cannot go to heaven 
unless you're born again. And just the name born again, doesn't that imply change? Doesn't that imply that something is different? The Spirit Himself doesn't. We, we're naturally born of water, and that doesn't do it. We must be born of the Spirit. There must be that radical change in our life. And being born again, it not only changes our eternal destiny, but it changes us on a very practical way, the very core of our being. Paul wrote it this way. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things... Are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Notice the wording carefully. He does not say if anyone be in Christ, he has a new eternal destiny, but he's okay the way he was before. Anyone be in Christ, he is a, a new creature, a new creation. All things are passed away. All things are become new. Old. It's who we were before we met Jesus. What does Jesus change in us from the old way? All things. It changes our attitude. It changes our actions. It changes our character. It changes how we react. It changes how we prioritize our life. It changes our values. There is no area of our life that being born again does not affect. It changes all that we are. So, how has Jesus changed you? How are you different because of Jesus? What actions do you take simply because of your faith in Christ and that you have been born again? Not because you're older. We went to New Mexico, went to Clayton Park, and to the lake, and there's these big cliffs that lead off into the lake. And 20 years ago, Kelly will testify, 20 years ago, I would have dove off those cliffs having no idea what was under the water below me. But dove straight in, would not have even changed my shoes, just jumped right in to see what was going on there. I didn't do that when we went on Thursday. Not because of Jesus. Because I'm older. 20 years ago, I was essentially indestructible. Now I'm kind of like those packages that say handle with care, fragile. But uh, even if there was deep water, I probably would have broken something along the way. So saying, well, I wouldn't jump off the cliff now. That's not Jesus. That's not a change because of Jesus. That's just, I'm older. Not because you're married. How many married folks in here know that we, we live and act and prioritize and do a lot of things differently because we're married? That's not Jesus. That's just because we're married. Or emotionally mature. I mean, how many of us, we know that what we did at 15, we don't do at 45. Not because of Jesus, but because we're not 15 anymore. Not because of any external circumstances, just because of Jesus. What is different in your life? Your actions, your reactions, your values, your priorities, your attitudes... Everything, what is different just because of Jesus? If you've been born again, and the old has passed, and all things are become new, there should be something. And where there is nothing, 
does not mean you should try harder. Where there is nothing does not mean do more. Because trying harder and doing more won't make a difference. Trying harder and doing more will fail. Where there is nothing testifies that Jesus is not there. And my need is that I would be born again. That I would come to Jesus and be born again. And then there will be evidence of Jesus in my life as He begins to make changes. How has Jesus changed your life? Second question. Is my heart pure? In Scripture, the heart isn't the seat of the emotions as it is in our culture. In Scripture, the heart is the center of our being, revealing who we really are. Proverbs will say, as the face is reflected in the water, so the heart reflects the man. What's in our heart is the real us. That, not, not the image we project, not what we do when others will see us and we want to impress. What is in our heart That's who we are. And when Jesus is in our heart, our hearts shall be pure. Now notice Jesus' wording. The pure in heart shall what? See God. What does that imply about those whose hearts is not pure? They will not see God. Now do you reckon that what Jesus meant there was that a person whose heart is not pure will go to heaven. But then they'll have to live in the suburbs and not come into God's presence. No, clearly. Clearly that's not what he meant. Just like when Paul, or the author of Hebrews, writes in Hebrews 12 and 15, that without holiness no one will see the Lord. He means without holiness no one's going to heaven. Without a pure heart ain't no one Going to heaven. Because Jesus changes our hearts. But the heart, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the heart is expert at justifying. So if we were to examine our own hearts, we couldn't do it. In fact, Scripture says only God could examine the heart. Only God can do that. We are unable To examine our own hearts because we're so prone to listening to our wicked, deceitful heart. We're so prone to making our excuses. So how do we know if our hearts are pure? Oh, we go to a standard given by Scripture. By Jesus. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth Evil things. I mean, that's pretty clear. According to Jesus, when the heart is pure, it is evidenced by the good things that are brought out of it. And when the heart is not pure, it is evidenced by the evil things that are brought out of it. But again, we could get into very easily trying to justify, well, that's not evil, that's this. But Scripture doesn't leave us To ourselves to figure it out. Scripture says things like this. Well Jesus says. O generation of vipers. 
How can ye being evil speak out good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Jesus specifically says that one way to judge whether or not our heart is pure is to listen to the words that we speak. Now the evil things that we might speak, Scripture has a lot to say about evil speaking. And it covers things like profanity, gossip, bad-mouthing others, vulgar or profane jokes and stories, lying, abusive language, saying things about God that, that simply aren't true. This could be in, in like false teaching or saying something like, thus says the Lord, and the Lord has not said. Now there's more, but those are the ones that are the Bible speaks of most often. So in light of what Jesus said, right? not, not me, in light of Jesus, what He said, what does it say about our hearts if we consistently use profanity? What does it say about our hearts if we consistently gossip? What does it say about our hearts when we consistently badmouth others? What does it say about our hearts when we consistently tell vulgar or profane jokes and stories? What does it say about our hearts when we lie? What does it say about our hearts when we are consistently verbally abusive to others? What does it say about our hearts when we say things about God that aren't true? Like, well, the world has changed. And, and I'm sure that what the Bible calls a sin... God probably doesn't care about that anymore. Or, well, I know that the Bible says that, that this action is a sin, but, but I just have such a peace that God has given me about it. Biblically speaking, do your words say anything about the condition of your heart? Yes. They reveal the condition of the heart, whether it is pure or whether it is evil. Now, that's not being judgmental. That's just what Jesus said. That's taking Him at face value. Some will protest that. You're taking Jesus too literally. He didn't mean it quite as strongly as you're saying. But, Jesus went on later to say this. But I, I say unto you that every idle word that a man shall speak, they shall give an account thereof on the day of judgment. For by the words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. On judgment day we will give an account for every word we have spoken. And by our words we will be justified or condemned. That's what Jesus says. Now that's not teaching salvation by right words or salvation by positive confession. The teaching is that our words are such an accurate condition of our heart that they reveal our eternal destination. So is, our, is your heart pure? I mean, do your words reveal a, a pure heart? But it's not just words, it's also actions as well. Jesus said that which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, 
thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a man. These are sins that defile. Now, again, surely we wouldn't look at that and say, oh, defile, that means my heart is pure, but just not perfect. Right? That's not the image there. The image of defiled heart is an impure heart, an evil heart. And Jesus gives us a list of sins that flow out of the defiled heart. And we're just going to quickly go through these. We don't have time to go into any of them in depth. But we'll just look at a few of them. Or look at them quickly. Evil thoughts. The Greek word for evil is also translated as grievous, harmful, malicious, or lewd. It covers a broad range. But if I have thoughts that are sexually lewd, consistently, evil heart. If I have thoughts that are continually grievous about other people, harmful, desires to harm them, Defiled heart. Fornication or adultery. It's sexually unfaithful to your spouse. Fornication, any sexual action outside the bonds of marriage. Now, keep in mind the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus explains the spirit behind the physical act of uh, sex outside of marriage, whether fornication or adultery, is is lust. So lust, like through pornography or something like that, would fit into that. Murder. Wrongfully taking the life of another. But again, in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus says that the spirit behind the commandment of murder is is anger. So it would refer to unjustified anger or anger that treats people with contempt. Right? So continually being angry and treating people contemptuously. That is the sign of a defiled heart. Theft to cheat and steal and to wrongfully take from another person. Covetousness. The word there, it basically means a consuming desire to have more. And it can be anything. It could be a consuming desire to have more money, more fame, more power, more sex, uh, more promotions, more, more stuff. It can be used to have a consuming desire to have anything. That becomes the focus of our lives. Wickedness. The word wickedness seems to focus mostly on doing harmful things to others. Right? So it is malice, hatred, and doing harm to other people. Deceit. It, the word meant to bait someone and to lead them into a trap. So it is to mislead someone by twisting the truth in an effort to influence them to do something. Lasciviousness. The word lasciviousness is interesting. Uh, it's a general word to describe all kinds of moral uncleanness. But more than the actions of moral uncleanness, lasciviousness refers to the attitude about it. Right? So a lascivious person not only does sinful acts, but they're not ashamed. Like Isaiah says, they could not even blush at their sin. That's a lascivious person. When Think about it again in Proverbs. Proverbs talks about the adulterous woman who, who fulfills all of her lusts and then shrugs her shoulders and says, what? What's wrong with that? It's a lascivious person. When we can sin and not feel shame, maybe even a little pride, it's lasciviousness. An evil eye. An evil eye is an eye that lusts for what it doesn't have. The idea seems to be that of covetousness and jealousy. It wants what it doesn't have, but not only that, it's angry at those that do have it. You have what I want, I hate you because of that. That is an evil eye. Blasphemy. doesn't refer to blaspheming God as much as it does blaspheming man. It's basically slander. It's doing harm to another's reputation by spreading gossip, lies, or rumors about them. Pride is self-exaltation, conceit, or arrogance that causes us to consider ourselves as better than others. Foolishness. This is the hardest one on the list. 
Foolishness, the idea is thoughtlessness. Someone who thinks, or who thinks, who speaks without thinking is foolish. Someone who acts without thinking is foolish. Someone who does not think about the consequences of their actions is foolish. A person who is thoughtless regarding their morals, their duties, or their behavior is foolish. Now, none of that is a complete list. We know that there are similar lists. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5. But this is the list Jesus gave right here. And again, Jesus, right? So it's, this is Jesus. So biblically speaking, if, if you have a lifestyle characterized by evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, or foolishness. Not all of them, any of them. Does that say anything about the condition of your heart? Yes. Yes, it says that these evil actions flow from a defiled heart. They reveal your spiritual condition and your eternal destiny. And if these things are a part of your regular habit of life, your need today is not to try harder to put them out of your life. It isn't to, to turn over a new leaf. Trying harder and turning over a new leaf will fail. It won't make a difference. Your need is to come to Jesus and be born again. And he will save you. He will purify your heart. And there will be evidence of that pure heart seen in your life. So how has Jesus changed my life? Is my heart pure? And do I love Jesus? Like many things on the face, this seems easy. Of course we love Jesus. But let me ask you a big question. How do we express our love for Jesus? You know, we've probably all heard of the idea of someone's love language. The way that we treat someone and what we do for them that expresses to them that they are loved and they are cherished and they are cared for. There are like five basic love languages according to Gary Chapman. And each person has kind of a unique way that, they, that makes them feel loved. What about Jesus? What, what, what would be His love language? What do we do that makes Jesus feel cherished, special, loved by us? A lot of things we could say and we would just go around and talk. But there is one, one answer. One primary answer that we find. And it was laid out by Jesus very clearly. Turn to John 14 and verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now look at verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Now look at verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. 
The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. You know, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that are difficult to understand. Make you wonder, man, what exactly does that mean? It could mean this, it could mean that. These passages don't fall into that category. I mean, they are disturbingly clear. So clear that we do kind of want to change them up a little bit. We, we want to find a way to lighten them, but we can't. How do we show Jesus that we love Him? We keep His commandments. Who in the world, in all of the world, of everybody that, that gives testimonies and everybody that goes to church and everybody that claims the name of Christ, who actually loves Jesus according to Jesus? Those that keep His commandments. What if I don't keep His commandments? What does that say about me? Jesus says that says I don't love Him. But, but what if I can give a great testimony? And what if I can sing a powerful song? And what if I can say all the right words but, and move everybody to tears? But I don't keep His commandments. And Jesus still says, I don't love Him. And that's a powerful, bold statement. So what is Jesus' love language? How do we show Jesus we love Him? By keeping His commandments. If I was going to make it hard, I would bring in 1 John 5, 3 where John says, and this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome to us. But I'm not going to get into that today. We don't have time. We can give all the testimonies about Jesus we want. We can write all the Facebook and social media posts about Jesus that we want. We can sing the best songs. We can say the right words. But if we do not obey Jesus, we do not love Him. That, that's not my interpretation. That is just what Jesus said. Now some would ask though, okay, but does that necessarily mean I'm not saved? Sure, I don't love Jesus like I should, but I prayed a prayer and I was baptized. and Somebody told me I was saved, so I'm saved, right? To any sort of question along those lines, I would say that it's absurd. Absurd to think. That we could be saved by Jesus through the blood of Christ on the cross and not fall deeply and madly in love with Him. Now that's my conclusion from reading Scripture. But we don't actually have to have just my conclusion. We have Scripture that tells us the same thing. The Apostle John says, Hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So how do I know that I know Jesus? Keep His commandments. But what if I say that I know Jesus and I don't keep His commandments? John has an answer. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a, a liar. And the truth is not in him. The person who says they know Jesus but doesn't keep His commandments is lying. Lying about what? Knowing Jesus. They are so filled with lies that the truth is not in them. The truth not being in them refers to them not being saved and having eternal life. But I do love Jesus. Well, whoso keepeth His word in Him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in Him. If I love Jesus, I keep His word. My love-based obedience to Jesus, it gives me assurance that I'm saved. So if I'm a Christian, 
I'm meant to be like Christ, so I should live like Christ. And he that saith he abideth in him ought to himself also ought himself also to walk even as he walked. If we're going to claim to be in Christ, saved, then we should live like Christ. And how did Christ live? In obedience to the Father's will. To the point of death on the cross. Fathers, there be any way for this cup to pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That is the example of Jesus' life. And if I am in Christ, I am a believer in Christ, that should be the way that I live my life as well. John lays it out so plainly. There's not a lot I could say to make it any clearer. Our love for Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, should produce a lifestyle of obedience to Jesus. Now, when our love for Jesus produces a lifestyle of obedience, there will be times when we blow it. There will. This isn't perfection, but it's a lifestyle. John writes in 1 John 2, I write these things that you sin not, but if you sin, you have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Sin not. That's the standard. But if you do, you have an advocate. So the question isn't, am I perfect? Because you're not. I'm not. Nobody is. The question is, what's the characteristic lifestyle you live? Is your life more characterized by obedience to God's Word with occasional blowing it, occasional sin, occasional disobedience? Or is your life more marked by disobedience to God's Word with occasional obedience? Because it says something. That the lifestyle marked by loving obedience. That testifies I know Him. I love Him. I am in Him. A lifestyle of disobedience testifies I do not know Him. I do not love Him. And I am not in Him. If our salvation, the prayer that we prayed does not leave a mark of love-based obedience on our lives, if we are not bothered by our sin, that is a testimony. We do not know Jesus. We do not love Jesus. And we have not been saved by Jesus. And if there is a, a lifestyle marked by disobedience in your life, if that's how you live, Your need is not to try harder. Your need is not to turn over a new leaf. Those will fail. They won't make any difference. Your need is to come to Jesus and be born again. And then there will be evidence of Jesus in your life as your heart is changed and you love Him and you strive to obey Him. How has Jesus changed your life? Is your heart pure? Do you love Jesus? And then finally, is my faith in Jesus alone? Ultimately, evidence of Jesus begins with faith in Jesus. Everything rises and falls on this. Jesus said, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that is, again, that is so clear. Those who believe in Jesus are not condemned. Those who do not believe in Jesus, they are condemned already. But believing in Jesus is more than believing that there is a God. It's more than believing that Jesus existed. It is very specific. It is a belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. It's believing that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Right? Not The sins of the world is, is very general. And it can be for the sins of the world, and I'm included in a very general sort of way. But I have to believe it in a very specific sort of way. That what Jesus endured, that was as much my fault as it was anyone else's. He did that in my place because that's what I deserved. I've got to believe that Jesus died and that He rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus has been called the hinge upon which Christianity swings. Where there is no risen Savior, there is no salvation. We must believe that He literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. And then this is the one that would cause us to stumble the most possibly. We must believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only basis for our salvation. That's it. We are not saved by our good works. We are not saved by our good deeds. We are not saved by our good character. We are not saved by being faithful spouses, being good parents, by being honest citizens, by paying our taxes, by being baptized, by joining the church, by giving tithes and offerings, by being generous. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And that is a stumbling block. For many people, for humans in general, but, but in America where we, we, we sort of love the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of story. Come from poverty and make it to riches. Look at what I did. But salvation in Christ, it destroys that because it's, we didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We didn't do that. We'll not stand in heaven in front of Jesus and say, we did it. Me and you, you got me started, I carried it through. Or I did it, thanks for coming, but I was able to do it on my own. We will stand before Jesus and we will either say, you did it, I'm here because of what you have done. Or we will not stand in judgment at all. The only people who are saved by Jesus are those whose faith is in only Jesus. If your faith is in your family, in your nationality, in your church attendance, in your good morals, in your, your, your kindness, your niceness, in anything in you, you are not saved. Being saved by Jesus requires us to let go of self-righteousness saying, I deserve it. I earned it. It requires us to let go of our self-sufficiency saying, I carried it over. I got the job done. It is saying, if I am to be saved, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. I don't add a speck of dust on the scales of righteousness to my life. 
It is all in Christ and all about Christ. Is your faith in Jesus alone? If it's not, your need this morning is not to try harder. It is not to do more. Your need is to come to Jesus and be born again, believing only in His death and His resurrection for your salvation. So as we come to the end this morning, do you see evidence of Jesus in your life? If you don't, take that seriously. Do not treat this as no big deal because Jesus didn't. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that there will be people on the day of judgment who will say to Him, Lord, Lord, I did all of this stuff for You. I did all of this stuff in Your name. And He will say to me, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you see evidence of Jesus in your life? If there is no evidence of Jesus, dear friend, don't make excuses. Dear friend, don't rely on what someone told you. Don't go to someone and say, I'm a Christian, aren't I? Don't you think? You let God's Word stand. And you let it bear weight on your heart. And you let it break you and drive you to your knees where you cry out for Jesus to save you. Do not sit in a church day after day, week after week, year after year and die and split hell wide open because you thought you'd be the exception. Someone told you you were okay. Everyone said you were such a good person. Dear friend, their opinions do not count. It is Jesus' opinion that matters. There must be evidence of Jesus in your life. And if there is not, I am pleading with you today. Come to Jesus and be born again. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. If there is no evidence of Jesus in your life right now, Do business with God in this time. Don't pass it off. Don't let it go. If the Holy Spirit is pressing upon you, you run to the cross and you grab onto that. You will not be okay. You will not be okay. Dear friend, be born again. Spend this time and you cry out to Jesus. If you're here and there is evidence of Jesus in your life, but you have loved ones and there is no evidence, cry out on their behalf. Don't say that they're going to be okay because they were raised in a Christian home. Don't say they're going to be okay because they prayed a prayer at one point in the past. You cry out for Jesus to save them. So that there will be evidence of Jesus in their lives.
Let's take time and pray right now.